Welcome to Hooked on History. This is the second episode of our series on drug use in the 1950s and 60s. In this episode, we'll explore drug marketing in the 1950s and early 60s. I hope you enjoy the show. In 1986, psychiatrist Heinz Lehmann, one of the fathers of the psychopharmacological revolution, recorded his reflections on its impacts. Under the subheading, Business Explosion in Pharmaceutics, he wrote, quote, Psychopharmaceuticals, an industry of little economic consequence previously, quite suddenly mushroomed into a multi-billion dollar business worldwide. The big companies all scrambled for a part of the action and developed an endless list of Me Too drugs, each variety claiming to be a little different and a little better than the other, although there was not much solid evidence for these competitive claims. Drug advertising has become slick, almost hypnotically seductive, and, for many physicians, unfortunately, the main source of pharmacological information. End quote. And mushroom, the industry certainly did. In 1957, the pharmaceutical industry was, in general, the most profitable industry out there. It had an amazing 20% rate of return. Uh, rate of return is the, the profit you earn on an investment. Uh, that 20% was a full 5% higher than its nearest rival. So how was the industry able to generate such massive profits? Was it due to them producing a lot of uh, excellent and needed drugs? The fact that a thousand new pharmaceutical products hit the market between 1952 and 60 may suggest that, but closer examination of the figures tell a different story. Of those thousand new products, only 118 were actually new chemicals. The rest were just branded or tweaked versions of old drugs, or, or, or combinations of old and newer drugs. These branded drugs were inevitably more expensive than the drugs they replaced, despite not necessarily containing any new ingredients. This would allow companies to generate huge profits without much R&D investment. Um, to explain what's going on here, think of branded painkillers like Advil or uh, Nurofen in the UK. Both of these are essentially just ibuprofen, just with a slightly different formulation. Yet, check your supermarket shelves and you'll find that these branded products can be five times the price of generic ibuprofen. Uh, so why would anyone ever buy the branded product? Well, probably because of the brand's marketing practices, which obfuscates links between their drug and generic versions, and also due to the power of brand recognition. For example, Nurofen recently got into trouble for releasing a line of products with titles like Nurofen Back Pain, or Nurofen Period Pain, Nurofen Migraine Pain, or uh, Nurofen Tension Headache. And while you as a poor migraine-riddled consumer um, may be squinting at those supermarket shelves wishing they'd turn down that fluorescent light, well, you might think there was something special about Nurofen Migraine Pain. But no, it's just ibuprofen. And to add insult to injury, 
Nurofen charged double their normal high prices for these products. 1950s pharmaceutical companies had astounding success promoting the use of their branded items. In general, the decade saw an explosive rise in marketing. This was the beginning of that madman era of advertising, and drug firms were making good use of it. In 1947, patented or, or, or branded drugs only made up 5% of NHS prescriptions. By 1953, they made up 25%, accounting for half of the whole drug bill. By 1957, branded medicines accounted for half of all prescriptions. In this episode, we'll examine the rise of the pharmaceutical companies and the marketing tactics they used to achieve this success, as well as politicians' opinions of this advertising boom and reasons for government inaction. Before we start, I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsors. Patients key to high-pitched need melted mepobromate. Relaxes emotional and muscular tension without clouding consciousness. Melton. It's a fine change to find a cigarette so smooth and satisfying. The pure white plastic fibers of the tip yield more flavor from the fine tobaccos. Try them and prove that Grovesner really do double your smoking enjoyment. Grosner tipped. Fat people die first. As any insurance company knows, to live longer they must eat less. Dexedrine is the safe, effective drug for the control of appetite in weight reduction. Dexedrine not only makes it easier for the patient to eat less, but also prevents the irritation and depression that so often accompany the start of a reducing regime. Dexedrine, safe, effective appetite control. Okay, before I get into trouble for advertising controlled substances, those obviously are not my sponsors. They're the British Medical Journals. These are some of the kinds of ads that populated its pages during the 1950s. Each issue contained about 30 to 50 pages of them. And medical journals proved fertile ground for advertisers. Um, now, depending on the classification of a drug, marketing to the public may be illegal. But regardless, if you could persuade a person to take your drug, uh, congratulations, you, you have one new customer. But if you can persuade a doctor to prescribe your drug to his or her patients, you just gain dozens possibly hundreds of new customers. Plus, doctors were extremely easy to market to. Advertisers could take a more direct approach by sending them mail or have representatives visit them. As a journalist and historian Brian Inglis would write in 1965, quote, Promotion can concentrate on doctors. Their names, addresses, and specialties are readily available to anyone who wishes to sell a product to them. And... What makes the market unique? Doctors do not have to pay for what they order. 
The patient, in Britain more usually the taxpayer, is the purchaser. It is hard to think of any market which the seller is better placed. Even where the patient has to pay, it's not easy for him or, or his relatives to refuse a drug because it's expensive. It is not surprising that the profession has been subjected in recent years to the most powerful, sustained promotion campaign in history. End quote. And doctors did seem to receive mail from drug companies with astounding rapidity. In 1957, uh, an American doctor decided to calculate just how much promotional material was being sent out to the profession. He estimated the American pharmaceutical industry was sending doctors 80 tons, that's 76,000 kilograms, 80 tons of medical literature per day. As a colourful visualisation of this, he said that if all doctors lived in one city, it would take two railroad mail cars, 110 large mail trucks, and 800 postmen to deliver the daily load of drug circulars and parcels to them. Then, after being delivered, it would take 25 trash trucks to haul it away and burn it on a dump pile, the resulting blaze of which would be able to be seen for 50 miles. And this scale seems similarly extensive in the UK. Uh, John Dent, the editor of the Journal for the Study of Addiction, would write in one of his editorials in 58, quote, Every day doctors get advertisements of their virtues. Uh, speaking of tranquilizers. Every day doctors get advertisements of their virtues. These in glorious technicolor and most expensive printing on most expensive paper with strip cartoons of their effects on furrowed brows and agonized expressions of extreme pain and misery, with warnings of dire effects of a sleepless night. Even intelligent and sincere doctors are swayed by these advertisements. They deplore the spate of cerebral sedative drugs demanded by their patients, yet do little to damn it. Unquote. And tranquilizers and hypnotics certainly formed a good chunk of this advertising. Uh, as we discussed last episode, barbiturates were hugely popular. However, they were non-patented, so profit margins were slimmer. If a company could persuade doctors to prescribe their patented, uh, branded tranquilizer instead, they stood to make a fortune. However, the tactics companies used overstepped the bounds of what doctors saw as ethical. In 1957, pharmacologist D. Lawrence announced to the British Medical Association that he was astonished by the flimsy evidence pharmaceutical companies were using to market their drugs. Uh, MacDonald, who we also heard from last episode, announced to the Society for the Study of Addiction, quote, Manufacturers, I suppose, must advertise their goods in order to sell them, and no fishwife calls her fish stinking. But... Some of the advertisements for these compounds are hard to swallow. Not all can be as is claimed for a brand of mepobromate superior to all medications known at present time for the effective symptomatic treatment of neurosis and the restoration of repose. Um, he goes on to list out some more tranquilizer and amphetamine marketing claims before concluding. And so it is likely to go on and on. There are many other interesting drugs which are used to modify mood, or which do so in the course of their actions, 
opium and mescaline, ACTH and cortical hormones, chlorpromazine and LSD. But these have not been advertised in the same wide way. End quote. That last bit highlights how, in pushing their sometimes unneeded Me Too drugs, marketers could be distracting doctors away from more effective and safe older drugs, or new drugs which were seen as less profitable so weren't marketed to the same extent. And in doing this marketing, the jewel in the pharmaceutical advertiser's crown was the representative or detailman. These were employees who would visit GPs or organizations to promote a drug in person, and maybe hand out a few free samples while they're at it. In a 1958 uh, British Medical Journal article, the director of Bayer, Inch, would say of detailmen, quote, Of all the methods of propaganda, the representative is the most effective, end quote. And... Part of their success can be attributed to how useful doctors found them, and, and still do. Um, hundreds of new products were coming out every year, and it was very helpful for doctors to have someone come to your office or association and teach you about some of these new drugs. A 62 poll found that while a third of doctors used advertising literature to keep up to date, half used representatives. Inch in his article, uh, would point out that it's in the representative and firm's best interest that they're honest, as if they're shown to be a liar, well, it would reflect poorly on the company. However, while these marketing campaigns maybe didn't lie explicitly, they certainly seem skilled in the art of half-truths. In 1957, uh, Senator Kefever set up hearings in the U.S. to investigate the industry. He was suspicious of that 20% rate of return and, and thought it represented that not everything was above board. The hearings offer a rare insight into the practices of the U.S. pharmaceutical companies during this period, many of which um, also operated in the U.K. or, or owned U.K. companies. On the subject of detailmen, uh, Dr. Consul said, quote, there is a simple maxim which I learned from detailmen, which is known to most, if not all, the pharmaceutical industry. If you can't convince them, confuse them. End quote. And one of the main tactics of doing this, he called blinding with science. Uh, Consul gave the example of a drug which the manufacturer said relieved anxiety. The claim was apparently backed up by the fact that in rats, the drug produced an objectively measured change in a particular area of the brain. However, in reality, there was no relation between the reaction in rats and human anxiety. The careful and detailed signs surrounding the drug causing certain areas of the rat's brain to light up were visually displayed next to the claim that the drug relieved anxiety, in the hope that the doctor would assume the two were linked, and there was some kind of science backing up the marketing claim. Consul would state, quote, The desired effect is achieved by encouraging false associations, and the frequency with which this approach is used is adequate evidence of its success. End quote. And there are many complaints about half-truths and omitted information in the UK too. Uh, Dr. Myerson described an event where 
he confronted a representative who promoted the use of dexamphetamine, um, that amphetamine from the fat people die first ad. After um, double-checking the sales pitch, Myerson found that the drug had only been proved to reduce appetite for six weeks, not long-term. In response, the rep demonstrated that characteristic flexibility of a salesman. He changed his story and recommended the drug as a good way to start a diet. Uh, Dr. Wilkins wrote in to complain that a drug was being advertised as being placed high among the androgens listed in a British Medical Journal article. Uh, but when he double-checked this, it turned out the drug only held this lofty position in the list because the list was alphabetical, and the drug in question began with the letter A. Another doctor wrote in to complain that after using an expensive new drug on a patient, it didn't help the condition at all, and led to some serious side effects. Quote, I understand from the consultant, uh, who he was asking about this new drug, I understand from the consultant that the drug at the time was being widely used all over the country where this condition was treated, but he admitted that opinions of its value varied enormously. In fact, it was being used before controlled tests had been carried out. Now, apart from the suffering and the delayed diagnosis of serious side effects, this waste of public money is enormous. End quote. And the use of drugs before they'd been properly tested was unfortunately not as rare as one would hope. Uh, during this period, governments had very little oversight of drug firms. Um, the UK didn't even have something like the FDA to review drugs before they hit the market. It was pretty much up to the pharmaceutical company's discretion to decide when a drug was safe. It's hard to uh, find accounts from the marketer's point of view, but there are a couple. Uh, a 1961 rep wrote into the Lancet to complain about all the bad press his profession had been getting of late. He objected to being painted in a villainous way by these medical articles and stated the GP is not some simpleton who can easily be swayed to prescribe useless drugs. Continuing, quote, Provided we are completely honest, the doctor is likely to try products for the recommended conditions. In this way, sales materialize and our employers are satisfied. But, first and foremost, representatives of my acquaintance are always true to themselves. No, I'm not going to comment on whether pharma reps were always true to themselves. But, he's probably right. Though, you know, they shouldn't be seen as these conniving... Machiavellian figures swindling poor doctors. But the fact that, you know, by his own admission, doctors are likely to try the drugs they recommend does show, you know, the power they possess over the profession. Another British detailman, Ted Whitehead, described how after um, masquerading as a patient in his usual way, the doctor greeted him by describing him as, quote, a menace to the health of the nation. Uh, this interchange apparently uh, gave Fay Whitehead a change of heart, and he would go on to become a teacher. In 1964, he wrote in a New Statesman article, quote, But I can't help often thinking of those silver-tongued detailed men flying from surgery to surgery in search of disease, lurking among the running noses with a pocket full of panaceas. 
As they say, they provide some useful information to the medical profession. But for their sake, and for mine and yours, I hope the Ministry of Health won't wait too long before appointing itself the sole purveyor of full, unbiased, unselected details of all drugs, new and old. End quote. Of course, the Ministry of Health never did appoint itself the sole purveyor of drug information. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, no country has ever done this. I mean, there is a difficulty in replacing the service the industry provides. You know, governments already struggle funding the education services they already have. Uh, I'm doubtful there will be much enthusiasm to pay people with a scientific background to go around informing the profession about new drugs. Another method companies used to push their products and confuse doctors was nomenclature, uh, how a company named their products. As a doctor explained as early as 53, quote, The question of the name of a compound plays more part than is imagined in prescribing. A practitioner will remember an easy catch name much more readily than a long chemical formula, and in a busy practice will prescribe it as a matter of habit, and merely because it is quicker to write down. End quote. Now, when I first came across this, I was initially a bit dismissive of this angle. Um, it seemed far-fetched to me that doctors were prescribing one drug over another because of the catchiness of its name. However, I hadn't fully appreciated the, the scale of what doctors faced. Um, Brian Inglis, who we heard from earlier, wrote in 65, quote, The multiplicity of names for products in the drug industry exceeds the bounds of human imagination. First, there's the chemical name, which attempts to spell out the structural makeup of a drug. And here, a variety of forms of expression are as possible. Next is the generic name, which also has multiple expressions. Finally, a drug has a host of individual trade names used by various companies engaged in the promotion of the product. In consequence, a single drug product is represented in the market by such a complex body of nomenclature as to intimidate even initiates in the field. And if one can visualize this situation for a single drug multiplied by the thousands of drugs currently marketed, he can get some impression of the chaos existing in the area of drug nomenclature. End quote. In order to make use of this chaos, drug companies pushed their trade names hard and made little reference to generic titles. This not only helped build brand recognition, but it also kept the marketing claims surrounding a trade name separate from the actual science surrounding the chemical or, or generic name. As GP Liam Sherlaw would complain in a symposium on tranquilizers, quote, My attitude is one of complete confusion. Whenever I hear a lecture or read an article about them, I encounter the official names. On the other hand, Psychiatrists in their letters, when they recommend me to prescribe them to patients, and medical representatives who praise the virtues of products of their own firms, use trade names, and I find it impossible to correlate the two. Uh, Dr. Myosin would also complain that several times he had not been aware that the drug he was talking about with a representative was dexamphetamine until he later read up on it. 
of course, this all played into the tactic of confusing doctors. You know, if, if a doctor really wanted to know what they were prescribing, they'd have to work for it. During this period, the industry even started renaming itself. Uh, they were no longer to be referred to as drug firms. Now they were pharmaceutical companies. They no longer made drugs. Now they produced pharmaceuticals. This was done as a tactic to distance themselves from the bad press of narcotics. Of course, ironically, the industry was responsible for first commercializing many of these narcotics, like heroin or cocaine. So, while we've heard a lot of criticisms from the profession, how did they translate to the press? Well, to be put simply, they weren't. Apart from the odd article reporting on others' complaints, uh, usually politicians, uh, the press showed barely any interest in drug advertising. And when they did report on it, it wasn't exactly critical. You know, for example, when the Mirror reported that a drug company had started sending doctors LP records with a talk about a new tranquilizer on one side and the opera on the other, the article simply concluded, I wonder which side puts them to sleep first. And while the press did not seem too bothered about criticizing drug marketing, they did publish a steady stream of articles promoting a drug's use. This apparently inspired patients to demand a doctor to use these new, sometimes barely tested, drugs rather than ones that doctors had more experience with. In the US, there's a large body of evidence of drug manufacturers supporting this practice directly. During the Kefever Committee's investigations, they were told that drug companies were planting articles in the national press. When the committee investigated this claim, they found an organization in New York which was acting as a liaison between the drug firms and newspapers and radio and TV stations. The organization even produced a feature to promote their clients' products called Spotlight on Health, which gave the impression that it was a legitimate newspaper column. Uh, this feature, Spotlight on Health, was being sent out to 2,000 U.S. daily newspapers. Alton Blakesley, a prestigious science writer from the Associated Press, said he was once approached to write a story about a new drug for a magazine. The liaison offered Blakesley $1,500 to $2,000 to write an article for a drug firm, and all he had to do was mention the firm's drug by trade name twice and not to mention any other product. In addition to this fee, Blakesley was promised a further five grand under the table. And if it got reprinted by a certain outlet, the company would offer him a further $10,000. So, for anyone not keeping count, in all, Blakesley was being offered the potential to make $17,000 to plant a drug ad in the national press. I mean, that's a, that's a huge amount of money by today's standards, uh, an astronomical amount for the time. Now, I've seen no evidence that this was happening in the UK, but that said, Fleet Street certainly did show an enthusiasm for boasting the potential of a new drug, and Wonder Drug was the favourite label for substances they wished to sensationalise. 
Now, whether the reasons for these articles were honest or not, they still played the role of the drug company's unofficial advertiser. And sometimes these drugs could be dangerous. For example, in 53, the Daily Mail ran the headline, Wonder Drug Kills Pain After Operation, promoting the use of new anaesthetic Efocaine. The article claimed Efocaine has been tested by British doctors in a series of experimental operations and has been proved to be successful and safe. Uh, now, the only test I could find um, by British doctors came out a month before and it was based on just 14 patients. The rest of the story of Efocaine shouldn't really surprise any of you by this point. The week after the test was published in the British Medical Journal, the marketing train ramped up with a full-page ad in the next issue. However, fairly soon side effects started being reported. These started with letters about discomfort and pain, but quickly escalated into more serious side effects. Out of America came reports of serious neurological symptoms and permanent paralysis, even a death. Similar reports started appearing in the UK. The particularly damaging aspect of this was hospitals were already able to produce an anaesthetic for this purpose, which didn't carry these horrific side effects, and was cheaper because the hospitals could just prepare it themselves. By 1955, two years the Daily Mail hailed it as a new wonder drug, a definitive study on Efficane stated the drug's clinical use was no longer justifiable. And this epoch was littered with therapeutic misadventures like these, highlighting how there were severe consequences of unethical marketing beyond just costs going up. These sorts of events started to inspire open calls for regulation from some sections of the medical profession, uh, which is why you have that article from Inch, the director of Bayer, uh, essentially telling the doctors to simmer down and that it's not as bad as they're making out. So, in the face of this, what, if anything, did the government do? Publicly, the issue was mostly picked up by the Labour Party. Uh, some Labour MPs did adopt the medical arguments into their worries surrounding an expanding advertising market. Between 1950 and 1958, the total expenditure on advertising doubled from £180 million to £364 million. And some MPs were worried about the effect this was having on society. However, being incorporated into a larger issue means that specific problems um, aren't going to be given special attention. So, for example, uh, Labour MP um, Noel Baker presented medical concerns in a 1958 House of Commons debate on advertising, stating, quote, 
A great deal of such advertising is dangerous. Uh, talking about drug advertising. In the opinion of many doctors, the health of the nation is being endangered by wildly dishonest claims made by the manufacturers of these products. Uh, he'd continue, This is an important national issue. We are in danger of having in this country the situation which is developed in the United States of America. Do we want to become a nation of people who are boosted by drugs in the morning, soothed by tranquilizers in the afternoon, and put to sleep by hypnotics at night? If not, there is a strong case for looking into the advertising aspects of the problem, and, secondly, for tightening up the relative legislation. End quote. However, in this debate, in his, in his overall speech, he would spend much more time discussing how the populace was being persuaded to buy needless detergents and toothpaste. Quote, It is perfectly true that it's a good thing to clean one's teeth. It is perfectly true that it is a waste of good money to do with toothpaste. By far the most effective and cheapest way, which I recommend to any thrifty and intelligent housewife, and which I am trying to enforce in my own house, as from today, is to clean one's teeth after each meal with ordinary kitchen salt. I am proposing not to use any more toothpaste for the rest of my life. End quote. Um, no, I don't know about you guys, but I've totally bought into toothpaste. But in making this a general argument, replies from the government were general too. The conservative government were not going to curb marketing because it was good for growth and the economy and apparently made life more colourful. Uh, Labour's most vocal campaigner was Baroness Dr. Summerskill, who throughout the late 50s and early 60s was repeatedly pointing out the government was being ripped off to the detriment of the nation's health by pharmaceutical companies. Now, while publicly they didn't say much, um, it would be wrong to say the conservative government was doing nothing. The doubling of the drug budget over the decade obviously concerned them. Conservative Minister of Health McLeod would say that the drug budget caused him more concern than any other item, including hospitals. To combat it, the government was consistently trying to remind doctors to prescribe generic medicines instead of expensive trade names. As historian Stuart Anderson would put it, quote, The decade up to the mid-60s witnessed a struggle between the industry and the government for the ears of the medical profession. End quote. Now, I'm sure you don't need to be told which side was winning that struggle decisively. The government stood no chance of competing with the millions of pounds marketers were spending on doctors. If they wanted to reduce this, they'd have to implement substantial measures and controls. However, there are a few things that meant it was hard for the conservative government to do this. First of all, you had political ideology. Um, regulations and control were seen as the thin end of a socialistic wedge, leading to nationalization. And if you think that was a bit of a stretch of a slippery slope argument, let me give you Biodirector Inch's own words. Quote, it seems likely that unless the pharmaceutical industry becomes state-controlled, which has already occurred in some of the Iron Curtain countries with most unfortunate results on therapeutic progress, advertising by the pharmaceutical industry to the doctor must continue. There would appear to be no simple solution. 
the medical profession should try to adopt a more tolerant attitude to what, at worst, is a relatively minor nuisance. End quote. And you can hear there, um, Inch's aim in trying to get the doctors to complain less. Uh, but, listen, this is um, an argument that was replicated in the press that, for sake of survival, advertising was needed. And, listen, Inch was right about what was going on in communist Europe. While the West was pumping out pharmaceutical discovery after discovery, the East really didn't have much to show for themselves. This comparison was a large part of drug companies' argument for their continuation free from regulation. And, listen, you mustn't forget that this is the height of the Cold War. An ideological war over whether free enterprise or state control was a better way of organizing ourselves. In these scenarios, it's easy for things to become black and white. Also, the pharmaceutical industry was a star in showing how great free enterprise was. In its war for hearts and minds, the US government would put it front and center. You know, the, the communists might be able to send a man to space, but we can cure your ailments and make your life less miserable. And drug firms, of course, did their best to encourage this. Um, we already heard Inch put that Cold War slant on things. Um, but in the US as well, the Pharmaceutical Manufacturers Association uh, chairman, William Graham, announced in 1960, quote, Probably through no other industry can the superiority of our American competitive system be demonstrated so impressively, end quote. Plus, the industry was getting results. Um, even if most of the new products were needed, the industry was still making amazing discoveries. In the last episode, we explored how drugs revolutionized the treatment of depression, but this only makes up a small part of what the industry does. You know, they were producing new antibiotics for diseases and, and eradicating other diseases with vaccine. They were literally saving people's lives. In the face of all this, why would the conservative government make a move against a powerful pharmaceutical industry? Especially since the press weren't even complaining about it. But to uh, return to Inch's article, which is a rather interesting piece because it can be seen as somewhat representative of how the industry lobbied the government. You know, that's um, one of the advantages of being the director of buyer is you can be sure that your opinions are going to make it to the ears of those who are in power. Um, but another point he made, and I saw this also replicated in the press, was that due to their intelligence, doctors shouldn't need protection from marketing. Quote, Some doctors complain about the type of content of the actual advertisements, and it must be admitted that some of the less ethical manufacturers do overstate their claims. This is quite indefensible, but at the same time, the righteous indignation of doctors should be tempered somewhat by the knowledge that all of them, even the least qualified, have had at least six years of scientific training, and they should be better able to assess, in a critical way, the claims made by pharmaceutical manufacturers than, for example, the general public is able to assess the claims made by manufacturers of soap or toothpaste." End quote. Um, in other words, you know, 
doctors, they're men and women of science. You know, sure, a couple bad eggs are behaving inappropriately, but the intelligence of their audience should be able to see through this. Under this line of thinking, the medical profession should not need the same protections against advertisers as the general public. That said, uh, other pharmaceutical workers seem to disagree. Um, O'Brien, who uh, was an ex-employee of drug company Cyanamid, would write in a New Statesman article in 1964, quote, Doctors may rant and roar about the amount of rubbish poured through their letterboxes, but they fall for it just as heavily as any housewife buying her three-pence-off packet of soap. The drug companies know about this and churn out their blotters, their natty books, and coloured folders with anguished pictures, and doctors, indoctrinated like good housewives, form attachments to the brand, the sign of quality, the sign of whatever it is." End quote. Perhaps this uh, supposed difference between the susceptibility of the profession and the general populace wasn't all that was cracked up to be. If doctors bought into this complementary uh, idea that they were better insulated from falling for marketing tactics, the uh, the astronomical rise of branded medicines throughout the 50s and early 60s suggests they probably weren't. Interestingly, it's still a problem relevant today. Uh, a 2000 American Medical Association article found that most doctors did not believe they were affected by pharmaceutical marketing. A survey of German physicians found that about half of them thought they were rarely or never influenced by pharmaceutical representatives. That said, those uh, German physicians were not nearly as confident about their colleagues. The survey found that these doctors thought their peers were three times more likely to be influenced by representatives. And in our era, probably greater vigilance is needed, as advertising can be more subtle. Over the past decade, pharmaceutical companies have started marketing on social media, sometimes breaking direct-to-consumer rules. The press, too, can still act as the unofficial marketer. In 2018, um, in August, The Guardian, Telegraph, Independent, Mail and Times, pretty much all of the traditional um, UK broadsheet newspapers, uh, they all ran articles claiming Ritalin was the best treatment for ADHD and that hundreds of thousands more children needed to take it. They were actually reporting on a you know, fairly substantial study published in The Lancet. However, the press's claims exceeded the scope of this study. As the NHS would complain on their website, quote, Some of the UK media provided a distorted summary of the results of the study. For example, the Independent tells us, ADHD treatment may be needed by hundreds of thousands more children, experts suggest. This would appear to be based on a reported opinion of one of the authors of the study, but the study itself never looked at whether ADHD was being underdiagnosed. Similarly, the Times headline, Drugs are the best way to treat children's ADHD, is also misleading. 
Drug treatments weren't compared to alternatives such as behavioral treatments in the study, so it's inaccurate to say this. End quote. Now, um, just to be clear, uh, I don't think this represents some link between the industry and the press. It's just that um, opinions are more interesting to report on than science. You know, I mean, obviously the Telegraph is going to get more clicks from the headline, Drugs denied to hundreds of thousands of children with ADHD, experts say, than something more like, Study finds the most effective stimulant for the treatment of ADHD is Ritalin in children and amphetamine for adults. The latter doesn't really have the same ring to it, does it? Over the past decades, um, regulations have been put into place all around the world, uh, but the broad stroke problems do still exist. Uh, patented, uh, branded medicines still inflate the NHS budget, and every few years, the government still tries to combat it by educating doctors. And that in 2018, a medical article opened its analysis on drug marketing with a rather inflammatory statement, quote, Drug promotion is reducing, not improving health, by contributing to mistreatment, overtreatment, and undertreatment, end quote, uh, might not fill you with confidence about our current policies but at least some protections do exist. The drug marketing explosion of the 1950s with no legal constraints led to a situation where doctors were bombarded with advertisements of largely unneeded, sometimes dangerous products. Advertising tactics could be specifically geared to mislead or confuse prescribers, ballooning medical costs. However, these costs weren't enough to inspire a reaction from the conservative government, which politically found regulation hard to justify. As I've touched on, the costs weren't just monetary, though, and this libertarian stance towards the industry would soon allow one of the worst pharmacological disasters ever. One with effects so terrible that when a Belgian mother who killed her affected baby was found not guilty of murder, crowd cheered. So terrible that it forced governments worldwide to put the industry under stricter control. This will be the subject of the next episode here on Hooked on History. For transcript of this episode, as well as references, please visit the Hooked on History website at hookedonhistory.co.uk. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating on whatever app you listen to it on. It makes a big difference in giving the series some exposure. Again, if you'd like to contact me, please do so at hookedonhistorypodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at history underscore hooked. Once again, I'd like to thank my brother Nick for making this episode's music. Oh, no, I need to listen to the voice. Wait, wait. Don't move around in your chair. Okay. The union side. Okay. He's taken the day in his stride. No, that's not right. Well, let's try this one.
This guy. This is my favorite one. <laughs> Fat people. <laughs> so ridiculous. Fat people die first, as any insurance company knows. To live longer, they must eat less. Dexedrine is the safe, effective drug for the control of appetite in weight reduction. Dexedrine not only makes it easier for the patient to eat less, but also prevents the irritation and depression that so often accompany the start of a reducing regime. Dexedrine, safe, effective appetite control. Well, that was good. That was good. I think you put the jingle music like that. <laughs>